The rest of us this morning are going to be in Matthew 26 for our time in God's Word. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Matthew in the 26th chapter. Maybe we just gave you a Bible today and that's something you need to find. There's a table of contents in the front of that Bible and you can find Matthew 26 and you'll be joining the rest of us. Well, given the fact that we are a Christian church and we are Christians and Christians are all about Christ... It's probably of no big surprise to you that this morning we're going to be looking at the splendor of Christ. What probably will be a surprise to you is to see the context in which we will see the splendor of Christ. So we're going to read Matthew 26, verses 31 to 35. And at first glance, it doesn't look anything like something that would emphasize the greatness or the splendor of Christ. And Nevertheless, it seems to be there. So if you'd follow along with me, we'll read verses 31 to 35 of Matthew 26. It says, Then Jesus said to them, the disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the, all the disciples said the same thing too. You read that, probably the first thing that comes to your mind, it didn't come to my mind right away, is not the splendor of Christ. Oh, how magnificent. But you read that in light of the big picture of Matthew's Gospel account. You read that in light of what comes before. You read that in light of what comes after. You read it in, in light of the rest of Scripture. And you end up reading it like any other apparent tragedy. You read it like any other crisis. You read it like any other horrible event. And you end up reading it as a great opportunity to see the greatness of Jesus. A great opportunity to see the splendor of Jesus. Now, I don't want to find things in, that verse, in those verses that are not there. I try to work really hard to do that. But again, as we look at the details, we look a little bit closer, I think you'll join me in agreeing that it really is about the splendor of Christ and emphasizing His greatness amidst the disciples' failure. What we won't do this morning is follow and go verse by verse, looking at each phase and having an outline that follows each phase, because really it's pretty easy to understand. We, understood what, we understand what happens. We understand what's going on. It makes a lot of sense. So we don't need to do a lot of interpreting. But having read it, let's step back now and let's look closer at what it tells us about Jesus Christ. Let's look closer as it tells us much about His splendor and much about His greatness. By way of an outline this morning, I will organize my thoughts around six demonstrations of the splendor of Christ. Six demonstrations of the splendor or the magnificence or the greatness of Christ that should compel us to want to 
focus on Him, that should compel us to want to meditate upon Him, that should compel us to want to worship Him, and certainly to follow Him. The first demonstration of Jesus' splendor that is worthy of our attention and our meditation and our praise, number one, Jesus knows the future. It's as clear as can be in this text that Jesus knows the future because notice what it says in verse 31 again. You will all fall away because of me this night. Verse 32, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Then you drop down to verse 34. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night, showing exactitude before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has shown clearly that He knows the future. In fact, this is habitual for Him. He keeps talking about the future. He keeps talking about things in, in this Gospel account that haven't happened yet. And He speaks about them with great dogmatism. How can He do that? How, how can He talk about the future? How can He know the future? Well, I, I love it, even the way the song puts it. He knows the future because He holds the future. We can draw upon other scriptures and step back and say, He can speak so dogmatically about the future because He was there in the beginning with God before anything was ever even planned. He was part of the planning process. John chapter 1, verse 1. As the God-man, He certainly can speak clearly and dogmatically about the future. And we won't spend that much time on each one of these. This one in particular, we don't need to spend a lot of time. We see clearly He knows the future, not with uh, good guessing, Not with statistical analysis. He just speaks as if it were fact because it's as good as done. And it provides us with a great contrast. As we think about Christ and we think about His greatness and we find ourselves moved to want to worship Him and draw attention to Him and and have our lives aimed at glorifying Him, we're motivated because He is such a huge contrast from us. I mean, we use special satellites and Doppler radar and all of these things, and, and we know because it's, you know, 90% certainty it's going to rain tomorrow, and wish we would have planned a picnic. doesn't rain. Because of our finiteness, because of our ineptness, because things are beyond our control circumstantially, we don't know the future. We can plan the best we can, but we certainly don't know the future like Jesus knows the future. And it just causes me to want to say, Jesus Christ is worthy of my attention. The disciples were arguing with Jesus as if they could dogmatically know the future. And they clearly show that they can't know the future. What they were so certain of didn't even happen. But what Jesus was so certain of absolutely happened. Makes me love Him more. A second demonstration of Jesus' splendor that is worthy of our attention and our meditation and our praise. I really like this one. Number two, Jesus is right. Who here likes to be right? Yeah, some of us more more than others. I love to be right. I always want to be right. Ask my wife. I mean, I you know, I'm just I'm bent on being right. By the grace of God, I acknowledge that I'm wrong sometimes. <laughs> But all joking aside, I think there's something in all of us that wants to be right because it's right to be right. It's not right to be wrong. There's something in us that we we want rightness because right is right. I mean, just by definition. And yet when I look at my life and I see that I'm a failure and I say certain things and they don't come to pass and then I say things that are true and then I find out later that they weren't true, 
I'm reminded over and over again that I'm wrong a lot. But it makes me like Jesus even more. It makes me love Christ even more. It does cause me to see His greatness because Jesus is always right. You see it right there in the text, don't you? Verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night. He's dogmatic in his assertion. Well, he goes on with his dogmatism in verse 34. Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Even, even giving precision in, in this text. Then you read ahead. Look ahead to chapter 26, verse 69. There you see it. As clear as can be, Jesus said it was going to happen. They argued with him. They told him it wasn't going to happen. And who's right? Jesus is right. He's always right. And there you have it with Peter. They're questioning whether or not it's really, he belongs to Jesus and is associated with him. Verse 70, but he denied it before them saying, I do not know what you're talking about. Then we move on to the next account. In verse 72 it says, and again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And then we move on again in verse 74. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before a rooster crows. He will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. As sad as the circumstance is that we're looking at, and as troubling as it is, and as big of a crisis and a tragedy as it is, don't just stop after you see the disciples' failure. Yes, look at the disciples' failure as you read the verses, but look beyond the disciples' disciples' failure and their wrongness and say, Jesus is right. I'm more impressed with Jesus than I've ever been. Because they're wrong, He's right. And this ends up being something good for me to have lodged in my mind. This, This ends up being even a good lens for me to view other promises from Jesus in His Word. I mean, this is something that I want to have rattling around in my mind as I read the Bible and as I read the promises from God. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. I mean, if Jesus was wrong about anything, you can't trust Him about anything. Why are we here? He's always right. And a passage like this, just reminding us in one place where He's right, makes me even more impressed with the other passages where we have Jesus making these grand, magnificent statements. I just encourage you to think of some of your favorite promises in the Bible. A couple of my favorite ones are in John chapter 6 and John chapter 10. You can go ahead and look at my favorites if you'd like. I'll read them. But you can think through any promises you can think of that Jesus ever made. And I'll read John 6 and I'll read John 10. And I think to myself, based upon Jesus' track record, He's certainly right about these things because He was right about all the, all the other things. Read your Bible with the mindset of Jesus promises something. It happens. It's as good as done. It's fact. Jesus is right. In John chapter 6, it says, in verse 39, This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. (laughs) You know? What a promise. And having been reminded all over the place that Jesus is always right, if He says this is going to happen and He will lose none that have been given to Him by the Father, this causes me to love Him more. 
and to see His splendor even magnified more. John chapter 10 is perhaps even a a greater favorite than John chapter 6 for me. In John chapter 10, He tells us in verse 15 that He lays His life down for the sheep. But also in John chapter 10, if you go to verse 27, My sheep hear My voice. He's always right, therefore that that is going to happen. And I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, and I give eternal life to them, and they will, here's my favorite part, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He speaks with this this iron-clad certainty, this sureness, this, this dogmatism that is so wonderful. Jesus is always right, and if He's always right, then the promises that He's made that would apply to me and my life and to you and your life, you say, I, 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 will, I will praise Him and I will see Him as great. In fact, I will see Him as great every single time I ever see one of His promises and I see them come to pass, the ones that have already come to pass, and they just fuel my, my affections toward Him well, regarding those things that haven't come to pass yet. Isn't this good? It's just great stuff. Well, let's move on to a third demonstration of Jesus' splendor that's worthy of our attention, our meditation, and our praise. Number three, this is my favorite. Did I say that about the last one? It was one of my favorites. This this one's even better than that one. Number three, Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus goes to the cross. We certainly see that in this text here. When we look and see that reference to Zechariah, the quotation from Zechariah in verse 31, I will strike down the shepherd... Then he also makes a statement in verse 32, but after I have been raised, which assumes that he's going to be killed first before the resurrection. But keying in specifically on, I will strike down the shepherd. And yes, at face value, that's tragic. But we know the rest of the story. And yes, in the context of tragedy and the betrayal of the disciples, he says, I will be struck down. He's the shepherd. I will be struck down. And we say, based upon the implications, based upon what that means, based upon what he's saying about the cross, we say, this is splendid. This is great. And and, and even that in and of itself is a little bit peculiar because if he's going to be struck down and based upon what we know from the rest of Scripture, he's going to experience the undiluted, full wrath of Almighty God, his Father, on the cross. He's going to be judged. He's going to be stricken. He's going to be the one who is going to, to bear the wrath of God. And we know, based upon the fact that that is the key for our redemption, the key for our salvation, we know even here amidst this tragedy, this fallout with the disciples, He is emphasizing, He is pointing to the cross, and we end up saying, Yes! This looks way beyond their failure. As a matter of fact, speaking of their failure, who is Jesus going to be stricken for? The thugs are going to deny Him right here. I mean, that that's, makes it even more amazing. Yes, this is very, very tragic. But this thing that is so very tragic, where He says, you will fall away this night, is, is, is making, please, please don't miss this, is making the point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is not to read and to see the disciples failed. Oh, if they only would have tried harder. We should be praying for people like that. 
It's not, it's not making the point. The point is for us to see that they're absolutely failing. If there's ever a time to not fail, if there's ever a time to make sure you get it right, it is when you are there with Jesus, close proximity, and He is going to undergo the cross. You need to be there till the end and show that you're faithful. If there's ever a time to be faithful, these guys need to be faithful right here and right now. And what is so clear right here from this passage, at the very time when they need to be faithful, they absolutely blow it and they are failures. That shows us the astonishing nature of Christ and His atoning work. See, Jesus isn't going to go to the cross to show how good the disciples were. He's not going to the cross to show their great human potential. They're absolutely failing Him when they can't fail Him, but they do because this is who they are. It's showing the real them. Because they're unfaithful to God, because by nature they are Christ's betrayers, He's going to the cross. I mean, this should just be flashing brightly as you read and as you read the account. You should see that they have great zeal. Man, these guys, Peter's saying, no, 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 Lord. He's disagreeing with the God-man. It can't be. This absolutely won't happen. I will be faithful to the end. Falls on his face. Absolute failure. Folks, this is is really bad news, but it ends up pointing us to the really good news. This This is really important for us to see. Jesus is the great one. The disciples aren't great. Man, they're talking a great talk. We're going to be there for you. We're going to be there till the end. <sighs> On their faces, failing Him. Who's the great one in the passage? Yeah, the great one is Jesus. The great one is Christ. Because by what He will do for those faithless followers, is He will bring them to God. Because they were... Close to God. They were with the God-man. They saw what He did. They were there with Him. If anyone was going to be faithful, I can tell you what, you wouldn't have done better. If anyone was going to be faithful, it was those guys. And they failed. This is telling us something loud and clear too. What Christ does is for the faithless ones, even the disciples who are right there. They're not going to do the right thing. How about this? If they did the right thing and they were faithful to the end, then Jesus didn't have to go to the cross to begin with. The whole point of this is this, is this is just another example of exactly why he had to go to the cross. Because they would never do the right thing, the good thing, ultimately, if he didn't. Now, just to look at one other passage regarding this before we move on, I do want you to see that this changes as a result of what Christ does. He, he is going to bring about a change in their life based upon the cross. And the passage I'm thinking of, there are multiple ones, but Titus chapter 2. If you have a Bible and you can find it quickly, if you'd go to Titus chapter 2 and to see the other side of the cross, these faithless disciples, these failures, if anyone was going to succeed, it was going to be those guys to see that that based upon what Christ would do for them, because they couldn't do it, He does bring a change in their life. And this is true for believers. This is true for you. This is true for me. We're not faithful to Christ. He goes to the cross. He doesn't go to the cross to show human potential. He goes to show human failure. But because of what He does on our behalf, there's transformation in our life. And Titus 2 is a great, great commentary on the cross in this regard. It says in verse 14 of Titus 2, 
who gave himself for us, speaking of Jesus, obviously, in the context, it's substitutionary atonement for us. Why? To redeem us, that is to buy us out of slavery because we're enslaved to sin, to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And notice what it says at the end of 14, zealous for good deeds. You see, their ability and even passion, zeal to do the right thing, to actually be faithful, which is something they didn't have the power to do before because they were enslaved, thus they needed to be redeemed, now can actually be a reality in their life. How? Because they tried harder? No. Because they're more inspired? Because Jesus was a good example? No. Even though He was a good example, the whole key in that text, in verse 14, is the cross. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. When you see this tragic account in Matthew 26, you say, that is horrible. They were unfaithful. And then you see Jesus Christ is magnificent. He was faithful to His perfect plan to bring about transformation and redemption in their lives. And then you get motivated and you say, Jesus Christ is magnificent. Jesus Christ is great. I will serve you. Let's move on to a fourth, a fourth demonstration of Jesus' splendor, worthy of our attention, our meditation, and of our praise. Number four, we'll do this one quickly. Jesus submits to biblical authority. Jesus submits to biblical authority. And this one is so obvious that perhaps I shouldn't have even brought it up, and yet it certainly impresses me. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night, based upon what? For it is written, Zechariah 13, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. For it is written. Jesus says, this is going to happen. How do I know it's going to happen? Because that's what the Bible says. Pretty clear. You say, well, I understand that shows that Jesus affirms the veracity or the authenticity or the truthfulness of the Old Testament of the Bible, but how in the world does that show the splendor of Jesus? Well, you can tell a lot about a person based upon not only what they read, but who they quote and where they go for authority. I listened to a pastor preach a sermon. The church was recommended to us when we were on vacation and we went and the, the sermon was uh, somewhat suspect and I was wondering where the material was coming from. He really wasn't preaching the word and, uh, and it was just kind of an interesting uh, venture to sit through. And, and then at the end, he kind of showed his cards and he recommended that everyone buy a particular book by a particular author. And then my view went even lower because I'd met the author before. In fact, I'd been at a conference before where the author, uh, after he was speaking, someone who I knew had to get up and basically try to undo what he had done. And people were using words like snake oil salesman. It was not good. So, it was a suspect sermon and then he recommended the book, which is then revealing where he got the sermon from to begin with. And my view of him was low and then it went really low. And when you listen to people, you listen to Bible teachers, and, and, and based upon who they cite, who they quote, who they reference, your view of them either goes down or it goes up. It's not even true of Bible teachers, it's true of others as well. Well, who does Jesus quote? 
Well, Jesus doesn't stoop to quote anyone other than God. We could say Jesus quotes himself, but that would be for another conversation. I mean, he quotes ultimate authority. You, you want to know how I know this is true? The Bible says. God's Word says this is going to happen, so we all know it's going to happen. And Jesus shows that he's very wise. Jesus shows that he is very wise because he's quoting ultimate authority. And that's all we really need to see by that. But to see, yes, Jesus is splendid because he knew where to go to give the right answer. I suppose I could also say, interestingly enough, Jesus either makes a habit of quoting the Bible or just saying what's true. Do you remember way back when, it might have been in Matthew 7, where Jesus just speaks truth. And the leaders were amazed. The people were kind of dumbfounded because, because he wasn't busy quoting all of these contemporary scholars. He speaks as one who has authority. Well, whether Jesus speaks his own words because they are authoritative or he cites Scripture directly, he sets himself apart. And he shows he's wise. And he shows ultimately that we are to say, Jesus, you are splendid. And I will worship you today. Number five, a fifth demonstration of Jesus' splendor that's worthy of our attention and our meditation and our praise. Jesus ensures his resurrection. He ensures his resurrection. We see it right there, back after the scattering of the flock. Verse 32, it says in Matthew 26, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. It's going to happen. After the tragedy happens, after I am stricken, and that is no small thing, I want you to know I'm speaking of this as concrete fact and reality. After I've been raised, we'll meet up again. Yes, it does emphasize the splendor of Christ. And then we see it happen in chapter 28. We see this happen in 28, verses 6 and 7. And then I think we see a great example of what you're supposed to do when you come to, come to realization and you come to this reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Matthew 28, verse 17, When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. So for us even to have a preview, but we don't only have a preview in Matthew 26, we know how the story ends. What do we do when we, when we think about Jesus being raised from the dead? We worship Him. We worship Him. And I know in that text he says, some doubted, but those who doubted went on to say, my Lord and my God, which is another way of saying they worshiped Him too. So yes, in the context of this horrific compromise, unfaithfulness by the disciples... Jesus is pointing to His greatness. And by the way, regarding the resurrection, did you know that when Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father, it did many things, but one of the key reasons why God raised His Son from the dead was to make a declaration was to make a pronouncement of victory, was to shout from the rooftop, if you will, to everyone, He is the Son of God, the Messiah. It's one of the reasons. And so when we contemplate the resurrection and we see that Jesus promises He's going to be raised from the dead and then we see that it actually does happen, what we're seeing is God saying, My Son is the Son of God. He is the Savior Messiah. And that should cause us to say we worship Him because we see Him as King. 
This is what Psalm 2 is talking about. When Psalm 2 says, Today I have begotten you, and if we don't read the rest of our Bibles, we quickly conclude that's talking about the virgin birth and the birth of Jesus. Today I have begotten you is not talking about the birth of Jesus. Today I have begotten you based upon how the New Testament uses Psalm 2 is saying resurrection is the begetting when God says He is my Son. The Son who is to be worshipped. You can take the time to look at another time. Don't take my word for it. But just listen to the text. Romans 1.4 Who was declared... The Son of God with power. How? At His birth? By the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Acts 13.33 That God was fulfilled, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, that He raised up Jesus. It's talking about resurrection. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten You. The birth of Jesus is very important. We'll talk about that another time. Right now, the focus in view is the resurrection. We're to see the resurrection and we are to see the proclamation of the Father that says, Son of God. And the only right response to hearing Son of God, Jesus, is for us to say, my Lord and my God, for us to worship Him and for us to see His splendor. Number six. Oh, no, one more thing. Can't do it. I was so excited the first hour, I just about couldn't stand it. Now I get to do it again. I'm not skipping anything. There are no time, time constraints at all. We could be here a long time. No more Sunday school to to interfere. No, I'm kidding. Well, just a couple more vital things about resurrection. Then we'll move on to number six and we'll do that one quickly. I want to see the death of Christ and then the resurrection which is tied to His death as, as making Christ splendid and showing me a splendid Christ because not only does it declare He is the Son of God, it also is the key for my resurrection. It's the key for your resurrection. If you're a believer in Christ, the key for you being promised resurrection is His resurrection. That's 1 Corinthians 15. But even more than that, and I'm not trying to say more importantly, but in addition to that, my changed life is tied not only to Christ's death, but Christ's resurrection. This is what Romans chapter 6 is about. I need Jesus to not only die, I need Him to raise again from the dead so He can be shown to be the authentic Son of God, so that I can be guaranteed that I can have a future resurrection, but not only that, the key to my life not being the same as the life I used to live, the key to the transformed life that I am living is not me. The key to me not being the same person I once was is Christ. Death and resurrection. That's the argument of Romans 6. Go home and read Romans 6 and he talks about if you've been united with Christ in His death, then you certainly have been united with Christ in His resurrection and therefore you live according to newness of life. It's a guarantee. 
And so, again, when I see your life and say, wow, I'm so glad you're not the person I used to know. Or you see me and you say, I'm so glad that that's, that's not the old Pat. You shouldn't say, Pat, you're great. And I shouldn't say that about you. You're such a, just a great person. And it's so amazing to see how your life has changed. Oh, self-improvement is so beautiful. The whole point is, and the reason we make fun of that, because ultimately it ends up undermining the power of the gospel, we've been united with Christ if we believe in His death, and therefore we've been united with Him in His resurrection, and we now live according to newness of life. And so therefore, when you see a transformation in my life, and you say, I'm so glad He's not the person He used to be, you say, isn't Jesus Christ great? That's what you say. And we should be watching, even now, as God continues to change our lives based upon what He did for us through the cross, through the resurrection, we should be able to look at each other and say, Jesus Christ is amazing. He is great. He is astounding. Let's move on to number six. See, I couldn't have missed that part. That's just a testimony of God's goodness. Number six. Final demonstration we'll look at of Jesus' splendor that should cause us to worship Him. Number six, Jesus guarantees perseverance. If you persevere, you go to the end. If you're running a race and you persevere, you keep going even though you have a side ache. You keep going to the end. Even, if, even though you trip and stumble, you persevere and you cross the finish line. And I'm going to suggest to you, even in this kind of passage, that Jesus guarantees perseverance. Now, at first glance, if you're still awake on me, you're saying, I don't think so. You're saying, you know what, I didn't even go to Bible college, let alone seminary, and I got more figured out than that guy. First glance, this is a passage that is not about perseverance. This is a passage, it says right there in verse 31, this is a passage about falling away. So you say, say what? Well, let's look a little closer. This is not my main emphasis, but let's just look at some interpretive issues and then we'll look at the key to this. First of all, if you look again at verse 31, you will all fall away. This isn't about perseverance, at least there. Fall away. Scandalizo, where we, is the Greek word where we get our English word scandal, scandalize. It's the idea of being trapped. Leon Morris says it denotes the setting off of the bait of a trap and thus bringing someone into trouble. There is the idea of getting into serious trouble. He says unintentionally and unexpectedly. I'm not sure if unintentionally uh, needs is necessary. It could be intentional. It could be unintentional, I suppose, other than the being trapped part. The idea is you've been trapped. Well, King James translates it. Let's see if it helps us. Ye shall be offended. Now, maybe that made sense to people who spoke 17th century Elizabethan English. doesn't make sense to me. Offended means something different to us, typically. Another translation says, you will desert me. The same Greek word is used in other places and translated, makes you stumble or stumbling block. That's Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5 makes you stumble. I bring all of this up to make the point 
Jesus clearly is not saying these disciples will become apostate. He is clearly not saying they will be like those in 1 John 2.19 who went out from us because they were never really of us. I think a better way to translate it so we're not so confused would be something along the lines of that other translation I cited that said, and I would translate it this way, Then Jesus said to them, You will stumble. You will desert me. Would be a little bit more of an elaboration, but a translation, You will stumble. Now, I'm not trying to, to, to say it, it, that somehow means they're decent or it wasn't a big deal. Stumble with a capital S. But at first, we, we misread it, I think, and somehow conclude prematurely that these guys chucked it all together for good, never to be seen again. And we know that's not the case. We absolutely know that is not the case. Well, I still don't want you to buy my argument yet that this is teaching here that Jesus guarantees perseverance. But if you keep reading and look closer, I hope some of you have found it by now in verse 32. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Ah! And then we keep reading in the Gospel account and we see that they are there. How does Jesus know they're going to be there? Well, Jesus is God. (laughs) And Jesus is saying here, it's going to happen. I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So as dark and as tragic and gloomy as this crisis is, that they're going to deny Christ multiple times, even Jesus knows more than they would ever know in the midst of it, He's going to meet up with them again. They're going to stumble. But not so as to fall, perhaps we could say. This makes me want to say that Jesus is great, that He is magnificent, that He is worthy of our praise. Did you know that the Bible teaches that Jesus prays Effectually, that's a word you don't know, I would encourage you to add it to your vocabulary, a good theological word. That Jesus prays effectually, that means it's going to come to pass. That Jesus prays effectually for His own. He does. John chapter 17 would be a good passage to look at, we won't for now. But Romans chapter 8 I will read a little bit from. Jesus prays effectively, effectually for His own. And that causes me to say He's astounding. He's magnificent. He's great. He is amazing. You know the passage, Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8 talks about God causing all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And then it goes on to talk about those whom He he foreknew, He predestined. Those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He he justified, He also glorified. Did I get them all? I think so. And then it's in the context, Romans 8 is, that because He is for us, No one can be against us effectively, effectually. That nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities and all. He just goes off on this long, extended, wonderful, magnificent rant. 
to make the point over and over again, all-sidedly, that if you truly belong to Christ, you're secure. In that passage, in that context, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. If you're there, you can look. Otherwise, you don't need to turn there. But that's the context. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The implied answer is no one can, no one could. And then in verse 34, who is the one who condemns? The answer is no one can, effectively. Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And he just goes off. But I love the fact that I can see that in that context, the Bible tells me that Jesus Christ is there at the right hand of the Father and He is praying for us. This isn't some kind of wimpy kind of praying. This is effectual praying. This is sure praying. That it's absolute. It is sure This complements what we read earlier in John chapter 6, which I said was one of my favorite passages. Of all that He has given me, I lose none, but raise it up on the last day. He is busy praying for those the Father has given to Him. And He's praying effectually. This is not some wimpy Savior. This is not some Savior who tries and fails. This is the great King Jesus who can say beforehand, amidst the tragedy, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee implying you will be there whether they knew that or not. Isn't that good? This is fantastic. I would encourage you to look at the dark spots in the Bible like this dark spot. To look at the train wrecks in the Bible. This is a train wreck. This is a spiritual train train wreck and it's been orchestrated by the disciples and their lack of faithfulness. And I would encourage you to look, and I would encourage you to look in the big picture, and I would encourage you to look a little closer. Because over and over again, in the context of tragedy, we see the greatness of Jesus. Now I'd encourage you to look at your life, and look at your train wreck of a life. Apart from the grace of God, it's a big train wreck. And then you see, oh, by the grace of God, it's been cleaned up. Life has been restored. Jesus Christ is great. And He's worthy of praise and He's worthy of worship. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank You for Your great Son. Thank You for sending Him him here for us. We know, based upon what Your Word says, You sent Him here because You loved us. But Your love wasn't motivated by our love. You're the one that started the love relationship. Even as Your Word says, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. Impress us, God, with Your great love shown to us through Your great Son, the Son of God. And Lord, may we, as a result of seeing Him for, in His greatness, may we respond in worship, may we respond in devotion and praise, thanksgiving. For His glory, we pray. Amen.